Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. This is God's holy and inspired word. It contains all that we need for faith and for life. The grass, the grass, I just forgot that. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, thank you for the Bible, and I pray that it will bear a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is in the name of Jesus that I ask these things. Amen. What is the visible church? Are you familiar with that distinction? The visible church versus the invisible church. According to the Westminster Confession of Faith, the invisible church consists of all the elect. The visible church consists of every professor of the true religion and their children. The visible church is what Paul speaks of in this text. He doesn't know if they are all elect and members of the invisible church. He only knows what he sees and hears. These members of the visible church say that they profess the true religion, and so Paul believes them. However, if the Corinthians, and indeed you, are members of the visible church, Paul gives a definition of what that means. And this definition is contained in the doctrine of this text. But what I say about the visible church obviously applies also to the invisible church. As such, the doctrine of the text is this. God's church is holy and called to be holy. She is one of many who invoke the name of Jesus. I will repeat that. God's church is holy and called to be holy, and she is one of many who invoke the name of Jesus. This is revealed in the exposition of our passage, and I wish to prove this doctrine as we turn to the Bible. I would like to discuss this under three headings. First, that the church recognizes that she is God's church. Second, the church is aware that she has been called holy in the past by Jesus Christ. And she, and she understands that she has been called to be holy in the present and the future. Third, this church realizes that she is not alone. She is a part of a universal church in every place. 
In summary, I would like to reveal these. First, God's church. Second, God's particular church. And three, God's universal church. So let's look at these in the exposition. In the first heading, she is aware that she is God's church. Verse 2 says, to the church of God. The church possessed by God or owned by God. In other words, God's church. A true church realizes that she is not her own. She is God's church. The etymology of this word is ecclesia. It literally means church or assembly. However, many commentators acknowledge that the word ecclesia means something more than simply church or assembly. It means to be called out or separated. She has been separated from the synagogue, from the world, and by the blood of Christ. First, from the synagogue. The first century church was forced to distinguish itself from the Jewish synagogue. The word of synagogue means something uh, in Hebrew, something like assembly or called out. Something approaching ecclesia in Greek. But in the course of time, synagogue just stuck, whether in Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek. This assembly of the Jewish people was just called synagogue. One can see that, one can see that when reading the Gospels or Acts. However, the church was required to leave the synagogue by force. Acts 8.3 tells us that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. The church was forced to separate from the synagogue. Further, if you belong to God's church, you must be separated from the world. Galatians says in chapter 1, verse 4, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Of course, you can't go out of the world, but you are not to be conformed to the world, this present evil age. Furthermore, one recognizes that the church has been separated from the synagogue and the world by the blood of Christ Jesus. As Paul says in Ephesians 5.25, Love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word. Further, Acts 20.28 counsels the elders of the church, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, Knowing that you were not ransomed with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Christ has set you apart by his precious Blood. In this visible church, and indeed this invisible church as well, uh, 
I got permission to to use this as an uh, as an illustration, so uh, don't fault me for that. The other day, Andrew lost his temper for something that I asked him to do. I forget what. And I said, when you are tempted uh, to disobey, I want you to think of Jesus. Jesus obeyed everything that the Father commanded him to do, even laying down his own life for us. I thought this was good advice. And Andrew paused and thought a minute, and he said to me, wow, Jesus was really different from me. That that illustrates the point that for the church, the Father has set us apart by the blood that Jesus spilt for you and me. He is indeed very different from us. But let us never forget that Jesus obeyed to the point of shedding blood, knowing that if you are a member of the true church, God has set you apart from the synagogue and the world by the blood of Jesus. In summary, that is what it means to be God's church. And a former ministry, a wise man once said, well, he just said this all the time. This is not our church. This is God's church. If we only would remember that, we would be better off. Further, the church must be aware that she is not alone in the particular or the universal church. First, let us speak of the particular church of God. Verse 2 says, to the church of God in Corinth. This is a particular church. It is distinguished from the Thessalonian church or the Ephesian church or whichever church that Paul wrote to. They are, dis- they are a distinct church as opposed to the universal church. There, obviously, there is obviously a particular church in Corinth. Under this heading, we need to ask, is there really a church in Corinth? What business does Paul have in declaring this assembly a church? We have already seen that they had many offenses. They were schismatic. They were immoral. They didn't believe, all believe in the general resurrection and in the most extreme cases, even the resurrection of Jesus. What business does Paul have in addressing them as a church? First, there were many believers in Christ. Acts 18.8 says, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians heard Paul and believed and were baptized. Paul knew that there were many believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, Crispus and his entire household, Gaius and the household of Stephanus is spoken of in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. At the very least, there is an assembly of believers consisting possibly of as many as 15 to 20 
people gathered. And Jesus promised that where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Second, many believers are spoken of in the vision of the Lord. Acts 18.9 says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many people in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Paul had a vision of Christ that I just read. In the vision of Jesus, in, in that, that vision that Jesus gave to Paul, he said that there were many that belonged to him in the city of Corinth. Third, the, the theological response. In a more theological answer, John Calvin asks how they could be considered a church. And he answers in this way. What ground then had Paul for recognizing a church at Corinth? It was, there, it was this that he saw among them the doctrine of the gospel, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Tokens by which a church ought to be judged of. For although some had begun to have doubts as to the resurrection, the error not having spread over the entire church body, the name of the church and its reality are thereby not affected. Calvin concluded that this was a church by the preaching of the gospel and the administrative administration of the sacraments, which we will discuss in future sermons. Further, these believers in Christ are said in verse 2 to be those sanctified in Christ Jesus. This is sometimes called the definitive or positional sanctification. Definitive or positional sanctification means that believers in Christ are said to be definitively sanctified by the work of Jesus on their behalf. This word sanctified is related very closely to the term holy. And if you're ever confused about the term sanctified, then you can substitute it with the term holy. You are said to be holy in Christ, but only if you are in Christ Jesus. That if one has been effectually called and regenerated and joined to Jesus Christ, that you are positionally holy because of Christ. That is, a true Christian is said to be sanctified, that he is washed, cleansed by the renewing power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ. Christians have been declared holy from the domination of sin in your life. If you are in Christ, the dominating power of sin is crushed. Let me demonstrate you by the verb in this text. The verb sanctified or holy is a perfect passive participle. What does that mean and why does it matter to us? I will tell you. 
A perfect verb indicates a completed action or act in the past. A passive verb points to an act that someone or something else is responsible for. You are completely out of the picture in this passivity. So what does this grammar lesson teach you? If you are in Christ Jesus by faith, your union with Christ, you have been made holy in Christ Jesus without any deed or work of your own. You are completely 100% passive in your definitive sanctification. And that is a once and for all definitive sanctification. You have nothing to contribute to this. This is stated in the parallel passage of 1 Corinthians 1.30. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. And in 1 Corinthians 6.11, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You have been sanctified, if you are a Christian, by a perfect Savior, and you are completely passive in this action that was completed in the past at the cross of Christ. This is what it means to be uh, definitively sanctified. That you have been sanctified in Christ once and for all by union with Him from the power and domination of sin. That should fill you with such hope that Christ has not only justified you and, and acquitted you and given you a right status before God in the divine courtroom. Not only has He adopted you and has accomplished everything you need and everything for the inclusion of you as sons of God, but He also has accomplished everything for you to be holy and have a sanctified status. With that, we would do well to resound with the hymnist. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Nevertheless, you are called to be saints. Not in the Catholic sense of the word, but called to be holy. This is sometimes called progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification means that although you have been one once and for all holy or sanctified by the Spirit, you have been freed from the dominating power of sin in your life, but that you must continue in your sanctification. The Spirit having applied the work of Jesus, has washed you from sin's power in your life. Therefore, you are enabled more and more to be transformed by God's grace to die to yourself and live to Christ. In other words, you have been declared holy to be holy. In verse 2, 
This calling assumes that you have been effectually called and not merely externally called. Because how can Paul speak to one that has been because how can Paul speak to one that has been united to Christ if he is not a believer? Let's trace this out. If you have not been effectually called, then you are not regenerated. If you have been not if you have not been regenerated, given eyes to see and ears to hear, you are not in Christ. If you are not actually in Christ Jesus, this is said to an unbeliever. And the unbeliever cannot be said to join in Christ in any way. This stands to reason that this is not simply an external call, or else Paul cannot claim that you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, it's only because you have been effectually called. What do I mean by sanctification? I'm glad that you asked. As the Shorter Catechism maintains, effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing you of your sin and misery, enlightening our mind in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, He doth persuade and enable you to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered in the Gospel. Therefore, Paul is saying if, that if you are positionally sanctified, you must have been effectually called. And if you have been effectually called, you are required also to be progressively sanctified. You are declared and called holy in Christ Jesus in order that you might gradually be made holy. Let me state this by, by way of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Justification, justification is an act of God's free grace. One solitary act. Adoption is an act of God's free grace. One solitary act. But sanctification is a work of God's free grace. In sanctification, you are cleansed by the Spirit once and for all, renewed in the whole man after the image of God. Furthermore, you are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. But it is not, properly speaking, your work. But it is God's work within you. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So that, if, so that if you do work for His good pleasure, it is God who works in you. So that only God gets the glory for your justification. And only God gets the glory for your adoption. And only God gets the glory for your sanctification. However, let me say a brief word about future justification. By future sanctification, I mean that this sanctification will never be completed 
in this life. And furthermore, indwelling sin is real. And we must not be mastered over it or by it. For Romans 6.2 says, What shall we say then? Are we, con- to, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? As John Murray says, It is one thing for sin to live in us. It is another for us to live in sin. This sanctification will be a struggle for you all the days of your life. As John Owen said, we must be killing sin or it will be killing us. But we can cling to the promises of God and know that God is faithful. And He will bring this future sanctification about when you are glorified and do not have the presence of sin. You have been saved from the dominating presence of sin. But in the future, at last, you will not even have the presence of sin. As 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, "Now Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. The God of peace will completely sanctify you when you die or when Christ returns. God is faithful. He will surely do it. Next, the church realizes that she is not alone. She is just one particular churches of countless other churches who call upon the name of Christ Jesus. Let us pause now to speak of God's universal church. Verse 2 continues, Together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. God's universal church is described in this verse, Together with all those who in every place. With this detail, Paul includes both Jew and Gentile in all the world. With everyone and in every place, absolutely everyone that calls upon the name of the Lord. As Romans 10.13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Charles Hodge helps us to connect the dots here. Quote, to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, excuse me, to call upon the name of Jesus as Lord is therefore to worship Him. It is to look to Him for that help which only God can give. All Christians, therefore, are worshipers of Christ, and every sincere worshiper of Christ is a true Christian. To everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, both their Lord and ours, Jew and Gentile, have one common Lord. Thus, the church knows that she is God's church. They have been declared holy in their positional sanctification, and they have been effectually called. 
so that they must pursue to be progressively holy in their every thought, word, and deed. And they must be holy in the present and in the future. And this church is aware that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, absolutely everyone, will be saved by invoking the name of the Lord as God. Constitutes that they worship the Lord Christ. Let us turn now to a couple of applications. And then I will conclude. Don't you want to be this visible church described in this way? Do you want to be those who realizes that she is God's church? That she is sanctified through Jesus Christ and called to be sanctified? To be known for your holiness? I do. However, there are two challenges to this. One, you will not attain this progressive sanctification without a constant battle. You will not attain this progressive sanctification without a constant battle. Galatians 5.16 and following says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not... and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. To grow in sanctification, you will need to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. This takes dying to yourself and living to Christ who says, take up your cross daily and follow me. It will not be easy. It will be a constant battle and it will be a battle every day of your life. In progressive sanctification, you are committing to this challenge. You are committing to a lifelong battle. You have, you have to take on the full armor of God spoken of in Ephesians 6. Because when you became a Christian, you enlisted for warfare. Will you accept this challenge? I hope you will. Number two, and this is the final point. The more you strive to attain this holiness, the more you realize how unholy you are. The more you strive to attain holiness, the more you realize just how unholy you are. All the saints of old realized this. After the seraphim called out to Jehovah in Isaiah 6, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Isaiah realized just how unholy he was. He said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And also, Paul cried out in Romans 7.21, 
and following. So I find it to be a law that when I do, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? There is no use squabbling about whether this was untrue about Paul or not. It is true of all Christians. Whenever you attempt to become holy, you realize how much you are unholy. Isaiah said it, and Paul said it, and they both cried out for atonement. Paul said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Isaiah recalled the angel that brought a burning coal to him and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The closer we get to holiness, the more we realize how unholy we are. Nevertheless, we must strive to be conformed to the image of Christ. We may not attain it, and we may end in utter failure, or we may just attain it, but then we will be struck with how much we are unholy. However, You can say with John Newton, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. But soon, soon, I shall put off mortality, and with mortality all sin and imperfection. If you can say that, the process of being progressively holy, it will not be in vain. And remember that if, that if God works in you and accomplishes any work that, that you are sanctified, He properly gets all the glory. Let us pray. Dear Lord, I pray that this visible church will be known for their holiness. But that further, but that the further we get to holiness, the more we will appear to be in ourselves unholy. And that this will cause us to repent anew. That we might view ourselves as sinners, only saved by grace. But that we will acknowledge ourselves, view ourselves as once again holy, sanctified, but called to be progressively sanctified, more and more. And the calling is from You, O God. And that this is a constant call that we will strive more and more to attain it. We will realize that this will be a constant battle, but we will strive more and more to do the things according to Your good pleasure. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.